I just love baptisms, eh? I mean, they're just great, wonderful occasions of celebration. And um, Rissa, I want to um, I want to thank you for what you said this morning because what you said this morning helped turn us as a church, helped create something here, because many of us have been Christians for a long time, and just a mere fact of being on the journey for a while can cause you to get a bit blasé. (laughs) And some of us get to the point where we kind of have forgotten about this powerful God working in our life. And when we hear your story, we hear your words, it sparks something in us. And I want to say to you that you helped make our worship a really good time this morning. Because you laid a platform for that, for what you said, for what you shared, and it brought something out from us to worship this wonderful God because we saw what he had done in your life. And that reminds us, of course, what he's done in our lives as well. So I want to thank you and bless you heaps. And just, I, I do want to declare over you that just as you helped turn us this morning, I believe that in the days ahead, you're going to help turn the lives of many others as well. By the words that you say, by the life that you live, others are going to be turned towards Jesus and begin to worship him in a way that they've never done before. So bless your heaps. Right. I think um, Bruce said that baptism is very much like a wedding. There are many parallels to a wedding. And speaking of weddings, it's good to see Christopher and Shannon back here. Tell you what, two we- is it two weeks? It only takes two weeks and you start sitting where all the old people sit. <laughs> What's the story with that? Look at this. Two weeks ago you were sitting down here. The only difference is you're married. You're, not, you're no older. Why can't you get back down with these guys? <laughs> you're in this... Oh, gee. But if I reflect back on my life, there's probably been... Two times when, when I got up and publicly made some commitment about a particular way I was going to live or certain responsibilities I was going to carry. And the first time was when I was 15 and I got up and I said some words like Rissa said before I was baptised. And the second time was when I was 27 and I stood up and said, said some vows when Viv and I were married. And both times I made a commitment that really cannot be undone. So baptism is really very much like a wedding. And even though this morning is not about a wedding, however, if anybody's feeling so inclined, I mean, grab somebody. I'm sure we can arrange something at short notice. (laughs) But you'll need someone because it takes two, of course, you know. But but I think a, a wedding remains a really good picture for baptism. In fact, the Bible makes a parallel as well because it talks about the body of Christ or the, the group of believers that have committed themselves to Jesus as being the bride of Christ. So there is the parallel there in, in Scripture as well. And recently we've been talking about discipleship, haven't we? This following Jesus, this being an apprentice, learning his ways and, and, um, and aligning ourselves with him and allowing him to change, to change our life. And Baptism really is a significant milestone in this journey of, of discipleship, the process of discipleship. It's, a, it's a, a major event 
and, and the journey of being a disciple. And so there are, I, look, I've got a, a few, th- I had four points on baptism I was going to share with you this morning. And I don't know if, um, how are we going for time? You okay for 20 minutes or not? You okay? You all right? We'll go for it, eh? So baptism is an outward expression of a commitment or a pledge to Jesus Christ. It's the culmination or the confirmation of everything that, that anybody has said about following Jesus and about loving God. And that's what Rissa has said this morning. How many of you have been, been married for some time? Longer than Christopher and Shannon. How many have been married for more than five years? Okay, Kath and, Kath and Jim, how long have you been married? 54 years, very good. 64 years. What? Can you not make your minds up? How long was it, Jim? 54, right, okay. Now, can, you, can those of you who have been married for some time, can you remember, can you remember the first glance across the room? Can you remember? Can you remember the first the first time your, your your eyes made contact or the first words you spoke to each other? Can you remember that? Can you remember the the first the first time you held hands? And can you remember when the relationship grew and the companionship, the friendship, and you be, and sorry, what was that, Pat? Pardon? Oh, we don't need to know about that. Okay, it wasn't. Under the plum tree, he said. We didn't need to hear that. <laughs> but, and then you get to the point, get to the point of realizing that this person that you've grown to love is the person that you want to be to, committed to for the rest of your life. And so all the other options, all the other alternatives are put aside and you marry that person. It's a process. It's a journey, isn't it? How many of you, for how many of you was it love at first sight? Apart from you, dear, of course. How many, how, how many was it love at first sight? Anybody? No. How, many of you got ma- how many of you got married on the day you met? Not many, huh? Well, my grandparents got married on three weeks after they met. Yeah, but he always did what he was told, so there you go. <laughs> so now I know that you can, I know that you can be baptized the, the, immediately you commit your life to Christ, and there's a biblical example of someone who, who did that. But generally the process of, of, of getting to know Jesus and understanding his ways and, and discovering more about him, it's a process, it's a journey until you get to the point of saying, there are no other options, there are no other alternatives, and I want to commit my life to him. How many of you have been to the Fig Tree Cafe in Hiratonga? Okay, down the, and if you're sitting in there, there's a glass window and a sign that says, Thou God seest me. Now, we went to that church as a family, and I probably attended that church till I was in my mid-twenties. And I remember as an eight or ten-year-old kid sitting in there looking at that sign, it being uh, fixed in my gaze and printed on my mind, Thou God seest me. And I was, my first impression of God was not a good one. Because I was thinking, why was this God snooping in my life? Why was he being intrusive? Why did he need to know everything about me? Because at that stage of my life, then there were two people who knew everything I did, God and my mother. And I wanted to be able to hide from God. I didn't want him to be able to see everything. And so I, I, um, I went to the, my first concept of God did not endear me to love him or to want to follow him. But as I grew 
as a person and as I learned more about God, I understood that God was a God of love, that God was a God who forgave, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who had incredible power that wanted, he wanted to invest in my life, a God who had purpose and destiny for me. And as I, as I discovered that, this, those words, thou God says to me, rather than being an intrusive, uh, meddling God who wanted to kind of do stuff in my life that I wasn't keen on, it became a God who, who was looking down upon me like a father looks down lovingly on his son. You understand? So the, so the journey that all of us takes, takes us from a, 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 a position where sometimes we're not that keen on God, it's a first look, it's a glance, and then we can move to a point of, of companionship and friendship and then commitment and knowing that, that the, the only thing we can really do is lay our lives down and commit ourselves to him totally. Which is what I did for the rest of my life. And in the opening part of, of Romans chapter 12, there's an interesting um, passage there that talks about us giving our lives daily and every part of our lives, our waking life, our, our sleeping, our going to work, our, our eating part of our lives, giving it all daily, and then he transforms us. And then there's a, a really neat line that goes like this. It says, then we will learn from our own experience how his ways really satisfy. And I think that's powerful because as we do that, as we go through the journey and the process of giving our life, of, and remember we've been talking about discipleship, this whole process. As we do that, we learn from our own experience how his ways really do satisfy. Second point about baptism is that about, it's about community. Someone I spoke to once wanted to get, mar- wanted to get baptized, married, wanted to get baptized in a bathtub. Now, that's okay, but depending on how big the bathroom was, you can't fit many people in a bathroom. And it's a bit like someone wanting to get married in a wardrobe or, you know, a couple walking down the streets of Las Vegas, as you hear about, you know, and they decide to go into a registry office and the two of them get married without friends or family there. Very private. But baptism, just like a wedding, is a very public occasion where we enjoy it and we celebrate with friends and with family. And in baptism, we are baptized into a community, baptized into the body of Christ. Let's just unwrap a little bit of that for a moment. But our culture tends to see society as a just a collection of individuals, doesn't it? And to some extent, parts of the church have bought into that. In other words, when someone becomes a Christian, they become a follower of Jesus, and their lives are transformed, and then they, then they begin to transform their world that God has placed them in. But there's an essential ingredient that's missing. There's a dynamic that's missing there, and I think the, the, the real Christian perspective is that when a person becomes a Christian, they're transformed, but they're transformed into a body, into a family. And that family, that body then begins with those and the strength and the unity that's there begins to transform the world. Because we're not just a bunch of isolated individuals and we're not just a bunch of of changed individuals who have decided to do something together. But we're a foretaste of a new society that brings change to our world. And baptism, if you like, is the doorway, is the entranceway to to this powerful 
world-changing community. In fact, I think it's First Peter chapter 2 talks about the, the, the church or the, the body of believers being a holy nation that brings change to the world around them. Thirdly, baptism is about ownership. During the baptism, I think Bruce used the phrase, baptize you into the name of. Now, in the Greek, that was a technical term for commerce. Basically, it was a transaction, just like we use the phrase or we use a contract that says, um, you know, we we have a a change of ownership. And into the name of was the transaction for a, a change of ownership. And so if you, today, if we sell a vehicle or something, we have a change of ownership papers. In those days, if you sold the family chariot, you, the transaction was into the name of. And most of us have gotten rid of something either of little value or something of large value like a house or a car. And every time we do that, we relinquish ownership. We hand it over, we sign over, it's into the name of, it's no longer belonging to us. And at baptism... We're actually signing over the ownership of our life. It is no longer ours. It belongs to him. He's purchased it with a price. And we acknowledge that and we say, God, my life is no longer my own. It is yours. It's relinquished and I'm no longer having control of my life. It's been signed over to you. Fourthly, baptism is about life and death. Or should I say death and life? The immersion in water is symbolic of the death of Jesus. And as we rise again, of course, it, it, it resembles, it represents his resurrection. Now, there is, it's only when we identify with his death that we can ever share in his resurrection power. You got that? It's only when we die can we ever know what it really means to live. When Jesus talked with his disciples about the, the life principles of God's kingdom, of God's new society, of God's new order, he often used phrases that were full of paradoxes and people struggled with them. And even today, our culture would struggle with them as well. In other words, phrases like, um, if, you, if, you got to, if you want to be, uh, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you, want to, if you want to lead, at first you've got to serve. Uh, turn the other cheek. Um, love your enemies. And, and people struggled with that because it was upside down. It was back to front and it was counter to what the culture believed. And we would struggle with that today. But probably the, the um, if you like, the, the paradox to, to beat them all is the paradox that with a notion that goes something like, You've got to die in order to live. Now that's strange because you know Jesus said that if you hold on to your life, you'll lose it. Now that's anti, that's upside down. No wonder the kingdom of God is often referred to as the upside down kingdom. Because Jesus said if you hold on to your life, you'll lose it. Now we think if we hold on to something, it's safe and it's secure. But he's saying if you hold on to it, you lose it. But if you let it go, if you lay it down, if you put it aside, if you sacrifice it, that's when you live. And that's when you live abundantly. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, one of the most, probably the most well-known passages in the Bible, 
Jesus makes this statement. He's talking to a, a religious leader and uh, just discussing the issues of faith. And Jesus make, comes up with this statement. It's the well, most well-known verse. He says, For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that ever, whoever believed in him would not die but would have everlasting life. Now, the people of the day really struggled with that because what? I mean, a God who, a God who loves and gives? I mean, seriously? Because the Greeks and the Romans were used to a God who took, a God who destroyed, a God who was, gods who were vengeful. And sickness was caused by the gods and you know, um, the crops were ruined by the gods. And, and, you know, if your child died, it was the god's fault. So how could they get their heads around this god who, who loved and who gave? And that was a struggle for them in that culture. Because to them, the thinking was, was that you were punished and you died for the god's sake. But he was a God who, who, who basically was punished and who died for the people's sake. Now, how upside down is that to that culture? And yet that is the incredible truth and the beauty, the richness, and the good news of the Christian faith. And baptism is our response to what Jesus has done. This amazing expression of God's love and his gift to us. And we align ourselves when we immersed in the water. Align ourselves with his with his death. And everything that there is in about about our lives that is repugnant to God, all our indifference, all our rebellion, all our resistance to God, all our sin is washed symbolically when we go into the water. And as we rise again, it is representing this enabling and empowering of a new life, of a starting again. You know, one of the greatest themes, I think, of the Bible is, is, this, is this offer, if you like, this promise, this invitation to start again. In fact, it's more than an offer and it's more than an invitation. It's actually God beckons us. He summons us to start again. Just a few days ago, I was praying about this and thinking of this morning and the baptism and Rissa's story. And, and I saw a, as I was praying, I saw a picture of a man getting out of bed in the morning with a heavy trench coat on weighed down with this burdensome, heavy, oppressive trench coat. Strange, you may say, because most people get out of bed with pyjamas, or less, don't they? Don't go there. Um, but here was this guy getting out of bed in the morning with a heavy, burdensome trench coat. But it wasn't just one morning, it was every morning, weighing him down, it was tiring him down. And I want to just ask you this morning, some of you here, have the experience of every morning getting up with this weight, with this oppression, with this burdensome trench coat on your life. And you're getting tired by it. And I know what that's like. 
I know what that's like. If 20 years ago, we went through some rubbish and some crap and everything else. And I know what it's like to, to wake up in the night and wish it was day, and daytime, wish it was night. I remember, in fact, going through this stuff, and it was like a heavy trench coat, and I read this magazine, and the magazine said, if you want to start the day again, have a shower because the shower really tells your body that the day is starting again. And I thought, gee, I could spend the whole day in the shower, you know, starting again. I wonder if that's you this morning. A heavy, burdensome, tiring trench coat every day, and that's the start of your day, and it's the start of your life. Maybe for you, it's some regret. It's some guilt of the past. It's some, it's some hurt. It's some heartache. It's a pain, it's something you've worked through but not been able to overcome. It's something that someone else has done to you. It's family stuff, maybe. Or perhaps it's, it's something that's a fear of the future, a fear of the day ahead. And you cry out, you say, I just want to be able to start again. I just want to be able to start again. And maybe you can echo the words of the person who wrote this verse. It goes like this. I wish there was a wonderful place called the land of beginning again where all of my pain and all of my heartache and all of my poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby, heavy coat on the floor and never put on again. Maybe that's you this morning. Now the Bible is full of promises where God wants to take the heaviness often of us. In fact, the book of Isaiah talks about God taking this spirit of heaviness, this trench coat, this oppression, this burdensome weight that we carry, and he exchanges it for a garment of thanksgiving for life, a garment of gratitude to him for everything that he's done. How do we get there? We get there by remembering what we see in the waters of baptism. Remembering that there is a God who loves and a God who gives. And acknowledging that we have to let go of stuff. All the things that we, we hold on to that are negative to our lives, the, the, the stuff that God finds repugnant, and saying, God, I want you to do the exchange. It may not seem fair because I'm giving you all this stuff and I want you to put your goodness into me. But he does that. And that's how it starts. It's saying, God, I need to commit, covenant my life to you. And in doing so, you take ownership of my life. And then I'm committed to a bunch of people just like this, transformed into a church. And then you use me just as God is going to use Rissa to bring change to a hurting world. Isn't that a good promise? Isn't God good? Where are you this morning? Where are you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You're a God who loves and a God who gives. And we're not used to gods who take and are vengeful and destroy, but Lord, Gee, we've got lives like that. We take and we destroy some of the good things you've given us as well, even life itself. And Lord, we haven't, some of us haven't made a good shot of what you've given us. 
Maybe we've abused things. We've, we've taken for granted even the goodness that you've poured out upon us and life itself. We haven't treated that well. And Lord, where some of us have been hurt by pain, with pain and heartache and, and, and Lord, the, 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 the weight that we carry sometimes is unbearable. It's oppressive and we just don't know how to deal with it. We're tired. We want to start again. And so, Lord, we pray right now that by your Spirit, you would just speak to us. And give us the ability right now to hear from you, to you, for you just to inject your Spirit into our lives right at this very moment. And help us to see that you're the God of power, you're the God of incredible resource, the God who wants to do this exchange, to take off, to take away all the stuff that we would, that would hold us back. And Lord, put upon us a garment of thanksgiving, a garment of gratitude, and a garment that says, thank you, God. So maybe this morning you need to make a, a decision to follow Jesus. There's time. People have talked to you in the past, and you've had some conversations with folk, but today you realize, you've heard Rissa's story, today you realize that today is the day for you. You need to make the first step in this journey of following Jesus. Or maybe you've seen the baptism and you haven't been baptized yourself. You're a follower, you're a Christian, you've made that commitment, but you've never made it publicly. And today, you realize that God has been speaking to you and saying, I need, I need to make this a public thing. It's not just about me. It's about me and those around me. I need to do this as well. Perhaps you have got those, that heaviness over you and you're wearing that coat and it's not just every morning you get out of bed, it's, it's, it's the whole day, it's, it's your entire life is the heaviness and you need to be released from it. I'm going to ask that God really releases you this morning and by his power he takes that off you. If not miraculously today but over a period of time with counsel and with prayer, God removes that heaviness and replaces it with a garment of thanksgiving and gratitude. Maybe you've wandered away from God this morning. You've a time in your life in the past when you, were, when you knew you were a follower, but of late it hasn't been the case, and you need to recommit your life today. I'm going to ask that you do that.